Alrighty. Hope everybody had a great week. We are in the book of Daniel this morning. Um, if you guys want to open up to Daniel chapter 2. This is a very exciting lesson. It seems like every week's an exciting lesson, huh? It's the Bible. Can't beat it. But let's go ahead and pray. Uh, we do have a friend of mine, uh, Sean Ransom. He's right here from the Philippines. He's one of our missionaries. So it's good to have Sean. If you guys want to chat with him later, he'll be sharing a little bit. Um, just a greeting. And then uh, if you want to hang out and talk with him later, he'll be hanging around. We are going to go to, if anybody wants to go to lunch, we're going to go to Los Hilbertos on University Avenue over by the old building. So we'll head over there for a burrito. And then he's going to be at our care group today, if anybody wants to visit our care group. So, but let, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your kindness to us and just uh, just revealing yourself to us, giving us knowledge, wisdom. Um, Lord, without your light, um, we would be in darkness. Without you giving of yourself to us through the prophets, through your word, <clears throat> we would have no direction. But we thank you, Lord, that you have chosen <clears throat> to direct us and just to direct all of human history. Lord, we ask that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask that you would um, do that in our lives today as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Has anybody ever had a dream that troubled you? I'm not talking about a nightmare, just necessarily, but just you have some kind of dream and you wake up and you're like, man, anybody ever had a dream like that? Yeah, I have. Seems like I've been having more dreams lately that are just kind of. I had a couple of dreams in the Philippines actually up in Baguio that were kind of freaky. Where I was kind of wondering if Lord wasn't trying to tell me something, but uh, man, Katie and I, we went to a marriage conference last fall, and the Lord really blessed us and was opening up our eyes to some things and new layers of sin and confession, and we just came out of the conference just feeling really pumped up, both about the Lord but also about. Um, just our relationship and then uh, we get home and I have this dream where we're sitting in some kind of restaurant and I remember the table is like really thick kind of almost like a King Arthur table it was a it was a restaurant but we're sitting at this big table it was very thick and I'm talking to Katie and I think there's some few other people there and we're talking about things of the Lord and we're just really excited and for whatever reason at this place it was just very very busy and they came over and they decided to seat a couple other people at our big table because there was no more room for them. So I guess for whatever reason, that's just what they do at this restaurant. <clears throat> and so I didn't really pay attention to who they seated, but I could just keep talking to Katie about the things of the Lord. And all of a sudden I hear kind of out of my periphery, I hear this. Shh, 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 shh. And so I just ignore it and I keep talking about the things of the Lord. And then I hear this. Shh, and I look over, and there's like this weird demonic-looking dude with long fingernails and like weird-looking eyes, like just kind of like wagging his his uh, head at me. 
And I just remember I got filled with anger and I just slapped my hand on the table and I said, I will not stop talking about the Lord. And then all of a sudden, like I woke up and I was just like, and I just wanted to get close to Katie. I'm like, eh, help me. <laughs> and uh, anyway, she woke up. I explained it to her and she was just like, yeah, you know, the her, her one comment was, is she said, the devil's losing his grip. I was losing his grip. He's not happy. So I don't know what to make of that. I don't know. I'm not trying to tell you I had some Nebuchadnezzar dream or something like that. Um, we're we're going to talk a little bit about the theology of a dream today as we look at this passage. But it is interesting sometimes, you know, just ask, you know, where do dreams uh, come from? Before we read the text here, I want to just make a, a couple Kind of just kind of this will be summary suggestions about dreams, and then we'll kind of hit the text, then maybe come back to it. Is we know for sure that dreams are in the Bible, right? You see, dream, we're going to see dream a dream in this passage. We see it in chapter seven. We see it in eight. Um, we see Joel's prophesying at some point in the future. There's going to be people that are going to dream and have visions. We see dreams happening in the book of well, you know, with a. Uh, Joseph, we see dream in the back in the book of Acts. There's various things. Peter sees some kind of vision of a sheet coming down. So there's clear evidence of the Lord uh, at times using either dreams or visions to communicate information. But then we also see examples of false dreams. In fact, uh, over in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 8, and there's a couple places in Jeremiah where Jeremiah, the Lord through Jeremiah is warning people that you are dreaming your own dreams and you're wanting to kind of manufacture dreams uh, and visions for yourself so there's several different places once chapter 23 verses 25 and following then in chapter 23 verse 16 it speaks of false visions so the you know the bible records a lot of dreams and visions some of them are considered from the Lord and others are false and actually manufactured by the human heart in order to support what they wanted. In that case, they didn't want the idea that God is sending Nebuchadnezzar to come down and judge. They wanted to, to believe that everything was going to be okay. Um, but then the other thing that we could say is that if dreams are in the Bible, then we have a secure guide for how to understand those particular dreams, right? We're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar's dream this morning. And because it's in the Bible, we can have security in knowing that it did come from the Lord and that it has a certain interpretation that Daniel's going to give us. And there are certain dreams in the Bible where it's very clear, here's the dream or the vision and here's the interpretation or here's a false dream. And so dreams are in the Bible, and any dream that's in the Bible that's interpreted for us, we can be secure of that interpretation. But a third thing that we could say is that dreams outside of the Bible are not so secure. Um, we do know that the Bible says that you know he, that God does has communicated through dreams and visions, um, but we have to be very careful uh, about how we understand dreams outside of the Bible. Um, because we know that God speaks through prophets, has spoken through prophets, and he's inscripturated many prophecies, and he's given us his sure word that we now have. Uh, but unless you have the gift of prophecy, um, then 
there's no there's no reason like that my dream should be written in Revelation 23 or 24, right? Um, in fact, we have ample indication in the book of Revelation. We need to be careful not to add or take away from anything that's written in this book that just so happens to be the last book of, of our New Testament canon. And so, um, so we'll come back to that issue and try to figure out what do we do. So what then do we do with our own personal dreams? What I want to focus on in this text is the fact that God chose to give a very significant dream to a pagan. Uh, there's no indication here that Nebuchadnezzar is a believer. We're not going to see him really humbling himself until chapter 4, right? And um, <clears throat> But God does choose to give him dreams or a dream. So in this section, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's dreams or dream. We're going to see his threat, number two. Number three, we're going to see Daniel's prayer. And then we're going to see um, Daniel uh, give the dream back to Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to give its interpretation. And then lastly, we're going to see Daniel's promotion in God's exaltation. So let's work through the text together, starting with uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream or slash dreams. We're going to start right in verse tw- uh, 1. I'm reading from a New King James. And we'll make some comments as we move through the text. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. So notice here it says dreams. I want you guys to pay attention to the uh, the singular and the, the plural here. Let me get us on the right slide real quick if I can. That might be out of our battery or something. Um, so in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, Bible teachers tell us this is probably around 603 to 602 B.C., in Babylonian reckoning, uh, you wouldn't count the ascension year as the first year of the reign. The first year is kind of considered zero. And then his first year of the reign, and then there would be the second year of the reign. So this would, by our understanding, would be the third year since ba- since Nebuchadnezzar has been um, kind of ruling and functioning. So we're on the back end of the training period of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys remember chapter 1? And um, so this be his his second reign. And so he has dreams and he was just really troubled and asleep leaves him. Then verse two, then the king gave the command to call the magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, Chaldeans uh, to tell the king his dreams. I've got plural again. So they came and stood before the king. So you've got all these different. We've seen this in the past all these different offices for necromancy and um, a, a narromancy. That's a new word I heard this. I learned this uh, this week, onaromancy. I, I'm almost 50 years old. I've never heard that word in my life until this week. It just means giving the interpretation of dreams to understand the future, onaromancy. And... Um, so and you've got these Chaldeans, you know, these Chaldeans, that would normally be a term of just a particular group of people in Babylon. But it seems like it came to become a specialized term for uh, perhaps those that were kind of like the representatives of this whole group. Sometimes they be, they're called the wise men. But if you guys remember what we've talked about 
with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, basically they're working with a bunch of people are dealing with sorcery and spells, dream books. We have evidence of uh, Babylonian dream books where you had all these annals where they would kind of look for various interpretations. You know, this symbol means that. And um, so whenever Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went to work, it wasn't the best work environment, you know, we've said in the past. Uh, these are very uh, pagan, perhaps even demon-possessed people. Um, so they came and stood before the king. Verse 3, And the king said to them, I have had a dream. Now, does your text have that in singular or plural? Singular. So I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious. And the New King James says, To know the dream. Some translations say, To understand the dream. And this is actually one of the questions that's raised by the text is, is Nebuchadnezzar asking uh, for them to reveal the dream back to him as if he's forgotten it? Um, or is he um, just saying, help me understand this dream? Uh, we'll, we'll try to develop that as the text moves on. Verse 4, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. So notice they're the representatives. They seem to be kind of the group that represents this whole group of quote-unquote wise men. And from this point on, the text goes to Aramaic. It's been, the book of Daniel has been in Hebrew up to this point. Now it goes to Aramaic all the way through chapter 7, which is kind of interesting. Um, Bible teachers suggest that perhaps this section was meant to really be understood and read by the Babylonians and by the pagans, um, not just for um, the Hebrews. And... Um, by the time this book would have been fully put together, um, the Jews were probably all reading and speaking Aramaic anyway, being put into... Um, yes? Same thing with verse 1 and 2 are in Hebrew? 1, 2, and 3, and part of verse 4 are all in Hebrew. And all the way from Daniel 1, 1, all the way to that section of 2, 4, it's in Hebrew. And then it starts, then it moves into Aramaic. It's one of the unique features of this book. What's interesting is if you were just looking at the alphabet, so to speak, you wouldn't really know unless you knew Aramaic and Hebrew because they're using the same script. But all of a sudden, you'd be reading your Hebrew Bible, so to speak. All of a sudden, you'd be like, I don't understand these words. <laughs> these are now new words to me. Um, so, so starting in verse 4, uh, so the Chaldeans spoke and to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. And they would typically give the interpretation. Uh, in Babylonian culture, it was not unusual for the, for the king to have dreams and to think of his dreams as uh, signs from the gods to give him direction. And again, there were all these books that the quote-unquote wise men would refer to in order to try to give the interpretation of the dream to the king to try to give him some direction. Then verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. We've seen pagan kings are very much into these kind of threats. These aren't just threats. These are realities. The idea of cut in pieces is literally made into limbs which could mean that they would be sliced up, but there's no 
use of sword language here. And so what some people suggest is actually they'd be tied by the wrists and by the um, ankles to various trees or these big logs that would be tied together. Then they would cut the ropes, let the logs all fall apart. They'd be leaning and then they would just be made into limbs. It was an ancient form of fun Babylonian torture. You know, obviously the person would die. And, um, and so that's what's going to happen to these um, wise men if they don't reveal the dream and give its interpretation. Uh, verse 6, however, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, honor, or great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Verse 7, they answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on the earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, uh, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no one who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon so the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, we saw in the previous chapter, they're part of this whole group. They're considered part of the wise men. They're eunuchs, and they're supposed to be there giving wisdom and so on and so forth. And there's some component of them that's giving sorceries and interpreting dreams, and there's necromancers and all this kind of stuff. And so it's not unusual that Nebuchadnezzar would be asking for the interpretation of a dream. What's unusual in this instance, and and it seems like the whole group, the Chaldeans representing the group, is that he's he's asking for the actual dream itself. Um, Theoretically, these guys would have been brought in on a fairly regular basis, um, listened to Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, Go to the dream books, say this is the interpretation of your dream, Nebuchadnezzar. So it kind of begs the question, what exactly, why is Nebuchadnezzar asking something so unreasonable? Um, and and in, in a case that would not be out of the norm in the court. Do you guys understand what I mean? This isn't a completely out of the norm situation for the king to come in and say, I had a dream, here's what it was, give me the interpretation. But what's happening here is completely out of the norm. So there's a couple things that could be going on. Uh, first of all, notice that in the in the front part of the narrative, we saw that he, he spoke of dreams, 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 right? And then he says, I've had a dream singular, which um, some Bible teachers would say that could be a sign that he had one dream, but it reoccurred. It was the same dream. That's why it's called dreams at some places and dream in another place. In Babylonian culture, from some of their annals, we know that to forget a dream was a bad omen. 
And so it could be that he had, and then, and then the gods would actually bring the dream again, so to speak, at least in their annals, um, if a king forgot a dream. And so it, it could very well be that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. It troubled him. He forgot it. You know, how, have you ever had that where you just have a dream and you're really bothered by it, but for the life of you, you cannot remember what it was. Or maybe you can only remember like certain components of it. So it could be that Nebuchadnezzar was having this reoccurring dream. He can't remember it, but if he admits to all of his court that I can't remember the dream, everybody's going to be like, <gasps> that's a bad omen. The gods are against you. That's why you can't remember it. And so it could be that he doesn't want to let them know that he's forgotten it, and he's not doing the normal thing of telling them and just kind of making, making it sound like, no, you need to tell me the dream. So that's one possibility. Um, the other possibility is that he's afraid of, of subversion. Um, there is evidence, even in the scriptures, of people using false dreams or false prophecy to get the king to do something that actually puts him in peril. And maybe he's worried that there's some plot against him in his second year. And so he really knows what the dream is, and he's just not letting them know. And he wants to, he wants to put the pressure on them to maybe even eliminate some of his enemies. The problem is, is it would be really put him in a bad situation to kill off all of his wise men. Uh, there's really not... There's not much of an indication here that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't believe in the whole concept of his wise men and them giving interpretations and stuff like that and getting guidance from the gods. So for him just to willy-nilly go start killing everybody off would be kind of unusual. But it, it could be that perhaps the way the, the narrative develops, perhaps God didn't allow Nebuchadnezzar to remember the full import of the dream because God was trying to drive everything towards Daniel. So it could be that Nebuchadnezzar got the dream, he's troubled by it, but God did not give him all the details or did not allow him to remember the details because God's behind the scenes driving this thing into Daniel's lap. And that's kind of my inclination. I mean, there's you guys could read the commentaries. There's different ways to approach it. But my inclination is, because of the dream and the dreams and some of the background culture that we know of the Babylonians and the way the narrative develops, eventually coming to Daniel's knowledge, is that God had given this pagan king a dream but did not give him the ability to remember it. But he was troubled by it. And and um, and so God's just sovereignly moving this whole thing along to to put it into the lap of Daniel. You guys can take a look at it and see what you guys think, but that's that's kind of my inclination. So let's get to um, now Daniel's what we would call maybe Daniel's prayer, uh, verse four, fourteen and following. <clears throat> then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So it seems like in verse 13, and there's different ways to different translations do different things with this, but it seems like the killing had already begun and Daniel and his compatriots were next on the list. So the muscle Arioch, who no doubt would have had other people with him comes in to take care of Daniel and his friends. Daniel with counsel, probably counsel with his friends, and with the wisdom the Lord had given him, is able to stop the hand of Arioch and get him into a conversation. 
Um, and so he answered, and, and so he says, you know, why is the decree so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel, verse 16. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. You might want to circle or make a, just kind of keep verse 16 in your mind. We're going to come back to it. Um, it the question in verse 16 is, did he actually go into Nebuchadnezzar? Um, to to ask for a stay, or did he kind of just see an advisor of Nebuchadnezzar to make an, a future appointment to meet with him? Um, that's a question we're going to come back to. Is this Daniel meeting face-to-face with Nebuchadnezzar, or is he making an appointment to meet face-to-face with Nebuchadnezzar? But look what he does in verse 17. Daniel went to his house, and he made the decision known to Hananiah, Meshiel, and Azariah, his companions. Who's that? Yeah, so this is the Hebrew names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? So he makes it known to them. Then verse 18, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret or mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So he calls a group prayer meeting. Really good idea when your life's on the line. Gather together your friends and have a group prayer meeting. Um and so Daniel, he doesn't just go it alone. He does have some some believers, um, again, in this very pagan setting. Uh, you know, I know a lot of you guys work in various situations that are difficult and challenging. And um, but may the Lord bless you with one believer or maybe two believers that you can go to and pray with and seek the Lord in your in your place of employment. I know for me. Uh, when I was a public school teacher, just to have those those two friends that I had on campus to be able to meet with at lunch, which I didn't have at first. At first, I kind of felt, when I first started teaching, I felt like Daniel in Babylonia, and um, just there was nobody. And then eventually the Lord brought a few teachers, and we were able to talk and pray together, and uh, just a great encouragement. But these guys, so they start praying. Now we see the result in verse 19 and following, then the secret was what? Revealed. What words do you guys have in your translations in verse 19? Revealed. revealed. Does anybody have anything other than revealed? Say it again. Okay, there you go. There you go. Spanish, all right. All right, so yeah, so the secret is revealed. So the implication here, obviously, is it's revealed by God to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So they seek the Lord. They're saying, Lord, please help us. We need. We want to find the what this dream is, what the interpretation is. God, in his favor, reveals it to Daniel. and um, And we see back in... In chapter 1, remember Daniel was given, uh, yeah, in verse 17, one chapter, chapter 1, verse 17, God gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. <clears throat> so the Lord had actually given him the ability, uh, would bless him with uh, giving him understanding <clears throat> in visions and dreams. So then, so then Daniel just breaks out into praise, which I think is awesome. 
I got a feeling, though, that he's probably offering this praise as he's walking. Because remember, there's probably guys being killed. Unless you understand it as a stay has been put on the killing of the wise man. Some people think that. But I got a feeling that the killing might still be going on. Arioch just kind of moved on to the next group. And um, <clears throat> so Daniel gets the revelation. And then he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord forever. For wisdom and might are his. Wisdom and might is what we're going to see in this prayer. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those of understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's demand would there be any way do you think for daniel to come to knowledge of nebuchadnezzar's dream without special revelation no there just wouldn't be he could go search through all the annals of the babylonians unless god had just said here you go there they were just at you know, totally at the mercy of the Lord. And really, if as, as we think about a biblical theology of knowledge, or what we call epistemology, we are all completely dependent upon God to reveal His will to us. How many of you have met Jesus Christ in the flesh? You've met Him and shook His hand. None of us. So how do we know Jesus? We know Jesus because God has revealed him to us through his word, both written and preached. And if God didn't choose to reveal himself to us, we would just be in darkness. There would be no real hope and direction for our lives. Um, What does that say? No one can come to me unless the Father sent me draws him. Exactly. So here, Daniel and his friends, they're totally dependent on the Lord. So are we. But in verse 24 now, we see uh, Daniel goes and he begins to, to share this information. Then, therefore, Daniel uh, went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said to Thus to them, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. So he takes full credit for finding the man um, who is going to bring the interpretation. Uh, The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's Babylonian name, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? This kind of raises the question, did Arioch, you know, we already know that Daniel either went in before the king or made an appointment with the king. So why is Arioch suddenly showing up and saying, hey, I've found somebody who can help us out? Um, It could be that Arioch didn't really know that Daniel had made this appointment and gone before the king previously. Um, 
It could be that Daniel just spoke to a secretary. My inclination is, is verse 16, is Daniel didn't really appear before Nebuchadnezzar, but he made an appointment. That word time can be, uh, in verse 16, ask the king to give him time. That could be give him an appointment. Some of you might actually, I think the ESV, does anybody have the ESV? What does that say, Katie, or? Okay, to appoint him a time. So that they're taking that take on the Aramaic text. So I think I think that might be more the idea is Daniel had actually made an appointment. Arioch probably didn't know anything about it. But now they're just going to bring Daniel before the king. He's like, hey, I found somebody. And Nebuchadnezzar knows that this appointment is coming. And so his question is, have you been able to do what you were hoping to do? Or has your God been able to do that for you? So then uh, then 27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. That phrase, latter days, is a, is a, a phrase. Uh, it gets interpreted different ways in the English. But it's always understood to be pointing to the messianic end of times. He's not just going to be, he's, he hasn't just revealed to you what's going to happen in the near future, but we're talking about the far future, the, the end of human history as we know it. You dream, your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed, about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than any living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. When I'm reading this part of the text, I'm kind of like, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like, okay, Daniel, get to the dream there's people people dying but he you know he kind of it's kind of court protocol to kind of go through all these different things then verse 31 you o king were watching and behold a great image this great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome this image image's head was of fine gold its chest and arms of silver its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff. Uh, from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth so at this point he has told the dream to nebuchadnezzar we don't have the interpretation yet but he's revealed it and you can just imagine you know nebuchadnezzar listening to daniel recite this dream and just starting to sit up in his chair. I don't know if you guys, any of you guys fans of Hamlet? Anybody like Shakespeare's Hamlet? Um, 
Do you guys know the scene where they they work out this play, and uh, you know Hamlet has been, it's been revealed to him through some ghost that his stepfather killed his dad and then married his mother. Love these Shakespearean plays, right? And so Hamlet works out this play to basically put on display before the king what happened. And I love the Laurence Olivier version. Anybody ever seen the old black and white Laurence Olivier? Oh, man, it's just crazy. And so they're doing this play, and the way the camera moves, at first you just see the king just kind of drinking, just hanging out with his soulmate, you know, his queen that he stole from the Hamlet's father. And then as the play moves on, all of a sudden he's just like, what is going on here? Then he starts to grip the throne. And then as he sees what's happened and it shows the actor killing the other king, he just stands up and starts to stumble around the room. And you can just imagine Nebuchadnezzar, just this whole dream that nobody knew, that he couldn't, probably couldn't even remember the full details of, is now being reported before him by Daniel. That would be pretty amazing and pretty impressive. Um, I mean, what if, what if I walked up to one of you guys today and just said, I know what you dreamed last night. And I began to just tell it to you, just just point by point. You'd probably freak out. I'd freak out, right? But so here, just this scene is is just a, it's very very dramatic. But then we get into the interpretation. So not only has Daniel been told what the dream was, but now we've got this interpretation that goes well beyond. Um, the pagan times of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, verse 36. So let's, let's look at the interpretation together. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Now, just, just kind of a side note, Daniel is not holding any scrolls here to look at the Babylonian dream interpreter chart, right? He's been given this to this by the Lord. So the other guys will probably be checking their chart and coming in, and but he's just given this straight from Yahweh. Verse 38, And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior or lower than yours, this, um, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, and, uh, shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. In like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet of toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. We're going to come back to that in, in a, uh, a little bit later, verse 42. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, 
They will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron and bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this, and the dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So we've got this image, we've got different parts of the image described as four different kingdoms, uh, the end of which is the, this kingdom that comes from God, this rock that is carved out of the mountain and thrown at the feet of the image and topples over these other kingdoms. been lots of different ways to approach this. The most traditional way um, uh, to interpret the various kingdoms that follow, clearly Nebuchadnezzar is stated right in the, um, the vision, the head of gold. Uh, but right after the Babylonians, the next kingdom would be the Medes and Persians. And that's actually, when you compare that over to chapter 7, that's what chapter or chapter 7, or is it chapter 8, actually says Medes and Persians. After that, um, the traditional interpretation is Greece, uh, particularly with Alexander the Great as the head. And then after that would be, what's the big kingdom that comes after Greece? Rome. And so that's the traditional interpretation. The ten toes, it's all over the map on how you understand the ten toes. Um, if those that are more of a what we would call a dispensational um, leaning um, see what we have in this image is the reign of the Gentile kingdoms um, and then the lead up to the reign of the Messiah um, over the kingdom of the holy people as it's spoken of in chapter 8 and so you've got Nebuchadnezzar you've got the Medes and the Persians you've got Greece and you've got the Romans but the, ten, the dispensation would say the time of the ten toes has not really come to fruition yet. There's kind of a gap period um, where the Lord has set aside Israel and brought in the church and is causing jealousy. The, the Gentiles are causing jealousy on the part of the Jews who will then be brought back into the kingdom period during the millennium where Christ will reign for a thousand years and then on in into eternity. There does seem to be, uh, whether you are more of a dispensational variety or more of a covenantal variety, whether you understand that at this point is not my burden. Uh, we can talk about that on another occasion. Uh, but both would agree that there is some sort of near fulfillment. We do have this character, Antiochus Epiphanes, that came into the temple um, in the second century BC and desecrated the temple and slaughtered a pig right there and stopped all sacrifice of the Jews. And so when Jesus and the apostles show up on the scene in the New Testament, we are not having, there's no sacrificial system. Um, they are under the hand of the Romans. And so the Jews were looking for the Messiah to come and set up his kingdom. Because the indication here in 44 and following, and then when you compare it to chapter 7 and chapter 8, 
is it seems like the Messiah is not going to just come and then kind of live side by side with these pagan kingdoms, right? And just kind of slowly grow while the pagan kingdoms live side by side. There's this rock that is made without hands. And what does that big stone or rock do to the pagan kingdoms? It completely demolishes them. So there's this unprecedented just kind of uh, entrance of the messianic kingdom that happens suddenly at the hits at the feet the pagan kingdoms fall over the gentile kingdoms fall and christ's kingdom is established not slowly over time but it's according to these visions it seems like immediately and if you buy into that and you can we we don't have time to look at chapter seven eight but if you if you lean towards the idea that christ's kingdom rises suddenly and destroys the gentile kingdoms suddenly Guess what? You're well on your way to being a dispensationalist, just like the rest of us that read the Bible very carefully. Right? <clears throat> um, uh, so that's if you were if you kind of think that the that Christ's kingdom is going to develop slowly over time and be parallel alongside of the pagan kingdoms, then you would be more on the side of a covenantal uh, perspective on some of these passages. Um, but see, I'm I'm holding my Schofield New Schofield Reference Bible here, which gives me a good interpretation, in my view, of these uh, of these particular texts. But let's get back to verse 46 that kind of wrap wrap up the at least uh, the chapter two. In verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate, prostrate. Sorry prostrate before Daniel I always mix that word up and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him now this could mean a couple different things Um, it could be that they're giving him the appropriate materials for Daniel to turn around then and make an offering to his God that's my leaning the other leaning is that they're viewing Daniel as a God and actually offering something to him um the problem with that view is pretty much universally you normally have prophets and angels. Whenever people try to worship them, they normally there's something in there about their rejection of that worship. It could be that Daniel rejected it and we, it's just not recorded on, in the text for us. But my inclination is, is that he, he bowed down, gave him honor, um, and then gave him the materials to go offer to his God. Verse 47, the king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Probably that means ruler over the wise men in the province of Babylon, and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon, and also... Daniel petitioned the king and set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So very, just a dramatic situation here. I mean, just think about it. I mean, these are the slaves of a a minor kingdom. I mean, the Jewish kingdom is not a big kingdom that the Babylonians went and attacked and 
In fact, when Nebuchadnezzar first comes through uh, Judah, is he actually going to Judah to attack Judah? No, they're just kind of on the way to Egypt. They're, he's not even really, it's not even really a, you know, hey, let's go attack Judah. No, they happen to go through Judah. They, they sacked Jerusalem on their way to Egypt. Egypt was the real target. And, um, and so Judah and the Hebrews, they're all just dogs. They're the dregs of the other captives. And yet these dregs are the ones that are standing before Nebuchadnezzar, giving him the interpretation of the dreams that his other wise men could not figure out. And so what a what a turn of events. Now, let's talk about the the impact of this dream. Does Nebuchadnezzar hear the truth from Daniel and the interpretation of this dream and suddenly fall on his face before God and begin to worship the Lord? Now, what happens in the very next chapter? He sets up an image of himself. So while God is, he gives true revelation, um, people can still take good Bible teaching and good revelation, good dreams, and then flip it on its head and turn it into evil. And so Nebuchadnezzar hears this, this incredible vision about what's coming in the future. And he's the head of gold doesn't really think a whole lot about the fact that his kingdom is coming to an end at some point. Um, And all of a sudden now he's demanding that everybody worship this image. And so um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were in the frying pan, are now literally going to be thrown into the fire in the next chapter, which goes to show you that you can teach the truth and people can just totally disregard it and misinterpret it. Or they can come up with bad applications. You know, the Puritans back in the day, whenever they would preach sermons, they would always have, they would have like the sermon, they would talk about the text, exposit the text and preach it. And then they would have this section of those sermons called the uses of the message or the uses of the text. And what they meant by that is they would say, they would say, here's how you should use this teaching properly. And here are bad uses of the text. They would warn people about taking good teaching and using it wrongly. Like, for instance, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. You know, you can teach someone about the sovereignty of God, and what can they do? They can all of a sudden say, well, you know, uh, I remember one time was, this is years and years ago, there was this, this gal um, that was justifying getting back together with her unbelieving boyfriend because God and his sovereignty brought him back into her store with the cologne that she liked. Think about that. Why did you get back together with your unbelieving boyfriend? Well, why did God bring him into my store wearing the cologne that I like? <laughs> is that the right use of the sovereignty of God? Now, is it true that in the sense of first causes that God is the first cause of all things? Yes. Is it true that God in some sense had control of where this boyfriend was going? Yes. But does the Bible mean for that to be an excuse for sin? No. <laughs> and so there's right and wrong uses. Nebuchadnezzar hears good teaching that should have humbled him before God Almighty. And in the very next chapter, he's building up an image to himself. And we have to be careful that we don't do the same thing uh, with the Bible. 
I've known people that have studied, for instance, the issue of divorce and remarriage, and they have what seems to be a really good understanding of those texts um, until they want to get a divorce. And suddenly now they want to reinterpret all those texts. Um, years ago, I had a good friend who believed, you know, he believed what certain things about the Bible when it came to remarriage. Um, he had told me that he never wanted to be remarried. He just wanted to serve the Lord in his singleness because of his understanding what he felt like the Bible taught. And all of a sudden he met a gal and all of a sudden he reinterpreted the text and and married this gal without very little counsel, should have never married this particular gal. And uh, before you knew it, he was totally out of the ministry um, trying to take care of this marriage situation that he had gotten into himself, got himself into with no counsel. And um, and so we have to, you know, we have to be very careful. I've seen uh, teenagers who seem to have a, an understanding of not dating unbelievers. They seem to understand what the text means, right? Until they meet a cute guy who's an unbeliever who says, yeah, I'll come to church with you. And all of a sudden, boom, they've reinterpreted the text to align with their viewpoint. And so we have to be very careful to allow God's word to impact our hearts and, and to make a commitment. Lord, help me by your grace to do and apply the scriptures the way it's intended, not just the way I want it to go. Remember that Jeremiah passage, people were dreaming dreams up to go along with what they wanted in life. They were actually dreaming things and then claiming it was coming from the Lord when it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah, my sheep hear my voice, right? And um, there are times I think even as believers, we can our hearts we can get darkened and we can deceive ourselves. So we have to be careful about that. Um, but yeah, you're right. We got to go and pray and ask the Lord to help us be open to counsel. I've told my kids on a number of different occasions, if, if your desire is to really do what the Lord's will, do the Lord's will, and if you stay open to counsel, stay open to your pastors, your parents, and your godly friends, then, you know, I just believe God's going to guide you in your life. But when you s- close yourself off to godly counsel, watch out. Um, then now your heart's your prime to kind of start reinterpreting the Bible according to the dictates of your own heart. You know, as Nebuchadnezzar did here. A um, couple other things, and we'll we'll pray. Um, so, one of the things I think we can learn from this text is is uh, God was on the throne in the exile. You know, here God God's people got carried away off into Babylon, and it was nasty. You know, it was just bad, bad stuff. And um, there could have been. Obviously, a real temptation. I'm sure many people did feel just this hopelessness. God has left us. But even before they went to Babylon, through the prophecies of Jeremiah, God was telling them, submit. In fact, they, I forget exactly what chapter it's in, but in Jeremiah, he, he was telling the people, if you go outside of the city of Jerusalem and turn yourself over to Nebuchadnezzar, I will rescue you. But if you stay in the city, you're going to be destroyed. So turn defect, 
Jeremiah was telling everybody to defect to Babylon, then go up to Babylon. Guess what? Get married, have children, uh, we, uh, and, and buy houses or serve in your houses, and I'm going to bring you back in 70 years. And so even before they left, God was giving them hope. And then here they are up in exile, and God is continuing to dump hope on them through revealing of dreams and to demonstrate that all of these soothsayers and gods in, the, in Babylon are false, and the true God is still on the throne. That should give us, I think, great hope as, as we realize that um, we should not be trusting. We're, we're living still in the reign of the Gentiles, right? Christ is Christ in one sense, his kingdom is being spread through us, but Christ hasn't physically come to reign on the earth yet. And so we're still in this time of the reign of the Gentiles. And so there's a sense in which we really are strangers uh, in a foreign land. We're like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and yet we can trust the Lord. We're not trusting in President Trump. We're not trusting in President Obama. Uh, these are men that God is raising up and putting down, but we are looking to that stone that's going to be carved out. It's going to be thrown at the foot of the Gentile kingdoms and they will top over suddenly and then Christ will reign. And so that's our ultimate hope. Uh, and so because of that, we realize that Christ's kingdom is unstoppable. I don't know about you, but when I just have that image of Christ coming and just toppling over the world's kingdoms, that just makes me want to leap up. It's like, here comes Christ, and it's just, boom, it's on. And no one will be able to withhold him or stop his hand. He will destroy all kingdoms, and, um, and, and he will reign. Um, and then finally, true knowledge comes from revelation. Let's just cycle back to dreams here, and then we'll close. Um, true knowledge comes from the revelation that God gives to us. We know that there is general revelation that we can look out at nature and discern certain things about God. But to get any certain knowledge about God, God's got to reveal it to us. We wouldn't know that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a propitiation for our sins to save us from the wrath to come. Um, we wouldn't know any of that unless God had revealed it um, to his disciples and his apostles. And then if it wasn't written in the Bible for us today. So anything that we have in the Bible, we can just bank on. We can have security. If we've understood the Bible properly, interpreted it properly, we can say, I know this. Um, I'm certain about these things. Uh, any kind of, I don't posture myself a prophet. Um, if you want to talk about prophecy and our view here at Cornerstone, um, we believe that apostles, just like the last, Paul was, or you know, the last apostles died out, the last prophets died out, you know, um, in the early age to set up the scriptures. When the two witnesses come back during the period of the tribulation, then, yeah, okay, we'll probably have some opening up a new prophecy with the two witnesses, perhaps. But beyond that, there is no less authority in our Bibles than if Jesus Christ was standing right here next to me. Jesus Christ opened up his mouth and uttered right before us, and then I read from the Bible, there would be no difference in authority between the two. That's how authoritative God's word is and when it comes to our own particular dreams or visions or ideas um, we need to make sure that that all gets subjected to Christ's word um, I, I, I personally I think that there might be times where God allows certain circumstances in my life whether it's a dream or some circumstance 
where the Lord might be trying to direct me in a way because we do know that he's sovereign and he's the first cause of all things. Um, but for me to try to put that on the level of revelation, I believe is a completely inappropriate and dangerous. Um, I would never take my dream about the shushing demonic looking dude and think, oh, that was that special revelation on par with scripture. Um, it, it could be. Well, the thing, the thing is, is I've been in environments. I mean, my church, my first church environment when I became born again was a very, very healthy church uh, for, for the most part. But we did believe in, there was peop- t- times where people would stand up and speak their revelations from the Lord. And they would encourage people to seek visions and stuff. And I can remember just having my quiet time in my bedroom as a young person. And I thought I saw these flags coming out of a cannon. I went back and told my pastor, I saw flags coming out of a cannon. I think that means there's going to be wars. What is, what is that? You know, when you're in that kind of environment, you just start to, you start to think the way everybody else is thinking around you, and um, and so what was kind of sad in our church is because you would hear people telling stories, it felt like they were touched by Jesus, or is you would start to seek those things, you would start to seek these special experiences that other people said they were having. And then if you didn't get those experiences, it was kind of like, wow, what's wrong with me? All I've got is my Bible and the Holy Spirit and my salvation. Oh, what's wrong with me? You know, then you start to despise the passages of the Bible that say we are complete in him. We have everything that we need um, through the Holy Spirit, through his church and stuff. So I would just encourage you to be very careful about placing too much value um, now, Joel says that there will be dreams in the future, and I, we, in the pages in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we see dreams all over the place until the scriptures were established and the time of the prophets had laid that foundation for his word, and now we depend on his word and the Holy Spirit to help us understand it and illuminate it. If, that makes, if you have questions about that, you can talk to me afterwards. That's kind of our, our position on prophecy. It, uh, uh, prophecy is a real simple way to define prophecy. Prophecy is thus says the Lord kind of speech. That's prophecy. If you believe you're a prophet, then I think both New Testament and Old Testament means you are speaking with the authority of thus says the Lord. Secondly, thus says the Lord's speech has the same authority and quality of the Bible. Not all thus says the Lord's speech has been inscripturated, but all that says the Lord's speech has this uh, could it could have been inscripturated. It has that same authority. So if you meet someone who says they're a prophet, guess what? You should take their writings, write it down, and stick it in the back of their of your Bible. That's what prophecy is. It has that kind of authority. Um, and if they're saying no, no, my prophecies aren't of that weight, then it's not prophecy. Prophecy is thus says the Lord's speech. And so for me, I'm just not. Um, based on my understanding of the scriptures, I'm not comfortable saying that I have ever prophesied or I have ever heard prophecy in my age. This is the prophecy I read every day. I hear and read prophecy every single day from the Bible. Um, But unless somebody can come and do the deeds of a prophet and demonstrate that they are indeed speaking from God, i.e. predicting things that come true, in giving us new revelation. You know, a lot of the things that I would hear when I was a kid in my church were just repetitions of Isaiah. Somebody would stand up and say, Thus says the Lord. 
I will not let the fire touch thee, and I will not let the waters drown thee. And, and they were just reciting Isaiah as if it was a prophecy of the Lord. It's like, well, if it really is prophecy, predict something, because prophets needed to do miracles in order to demonstrate they were given new, fresh revelation, and then give us something new that accords with what the Bible says. <clears throat> if you're not doing that, you're not a prophet. And be very careful of anybody that claims they are a prophet. Because um, as you guys know, Jesus said, in the last days, there will be many false prophets. And we see examples of them all over the place. People that are claiming to have a word from the Lord. And, um, and it does not accord um, with the whole pattern of prophecy. I, I'm kind of, you guys, I, I can uh, get you guys donuts next, next week if you guys let me go one more minute. Um, but the... Uh, the difference in prophecy between Old and New Testament, the only difference is the punishment. In the Old Testament, a prophet, if they were a false prophet, what would be the punishment? Stoning. Because Israel is a theocracy, right? And they have a constitution that had certain punishments that included capital punishment. In the New Testament, if you have a false prophet or somebody who's teaching falsely, the church is not a theocracy anymore. They get excommunication right or you're warned not to listen to them so the only real difference between old testament and new testament prophecy is the punishment whether if if it's false or not um other than that read through the book of acts you're going to see the same type of language being used of the new testament prophets as the old testament prophets and and there's no modifiers in the new testament that says hey by the way we're talking about New Testament prophecy. That's of a totally different category than Old Testament prophecy. If that was true, then Paul and the right authors of Scripture would have been very, very, very clear on that. So any, any thoughts on that before we pray? So I've gone off on my little sideline dreams prophecy hobby horse. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. That's a really good question. So the question is, what about, like even John MacArthur will refer to the preaching of the word as a gift of prophecy in some sense. In my, in my viewpoint, I think it's, it is a muddy, it muddies the waters a little bit. And I'll tell you why. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, we, we know in, in 1 Timothy 2, a woman shall not what? Teach or have authority over man, correct? So our, in, the, in the church, are women allowed to teach or have authority over men? No. In 1 Corinthians 11, a woman may prophesy if what? She has her head covered. So women are allowed to prophesy, but they're not allowed to teach. That means they're different, Correct. So they must be different. So prophecy is a conduit. God uses certain people as a conduit of information. Thus says the Lord, more of a pipe, water flowing through a pipe. That's why a woman was allowed to prophesy but not teach. Teaching is someone who's looking at the word of God and then they're given exhortations. They're not just a conduit of information. They're actually exhorting with that information. And so I love John MacArthur. I would just say, 
in one sense, if, if you're reading God's word, there's a sense in which that's prophecy because you're reading prophecy. But once you start teaching from the word, now you're no longer prophesying, you're teaching or preaching. And I think it's important to keep those two distinguished. Otherwise, we do get confused about what prophecy really is, I think. Um, so if that answers that question. There are there are lots of people today who believe that they that they are prophets or that they prophesy. Some of the confusion, I think, is what I would describe as sometimes I think there are people that are doing the right thing, but they're using the wrong word to describe it. Like, you know, if somebody comes up and exhorts me and they're challenging me in the word and, and they give me something that really is something I needed to hear. And I do think it was from the Lord and they might call it prophecy and I just wouldn't. I, I, I think I, I think it's possible that a person might be immature in their understanding and description of that spiritual gift. They just gave me they they have the gift of exhortation. They understand the word of God and they were led of the Holy Spirit to exhort me. But I wouldn't call it prophecy because if it was prophecy, it should have a predictive value and it should have the same weight and authority that we could stick in our Bibles theoretically. Again, is all prophecy inscripturated? No. Does all prophecy have the same weight of scripture? Yes. It does have the same weight of scripture. Does that make sense? Anyway, so you guys got a free lesson on prophecy today. All right, no charge. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that is, uh, thus says the Lord's speech. We thank you, amazing, how amazing it is that you would reveal these incredible plans to a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, and just to set all this stuff up for Daniel to give these interpretations, for us to get a glimpse of the messianic kingdom that is not growing side by side with pagan kingdoms, but comes suddenly, strikes at the feet. Lord, we look forward. We ask, Lord, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would just extend your reign in our hearts as we await for your reign on the earth. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.